0: Again, I remind you that the overarching theme of this letter is that the Christian life finds its sole source in Jesus Christ who is preeminent over all things. This letter was prompted by false teaching. And, you know, I think the whole issue of false teaching, again, uh, has and the dangers of it have become... um, Refreshed in Jonel's in my mind lately, at least two people we know pretty well have fallen prey to false teaching lately. And false teaching that has um, attacked the person of Christ, who he is. Uh, false teaching that has attacked the work of Christ, what he did. Uh, and uh, we live in a world where uh, false teaching is um, very prevalent. And, you know, you think those who have been raised up in the church, you know, are solid enough that they won't be led astray. Yet, you know, one of the people we know is someone who actually served on the mission field for a while. And now has gone down this path of error. And you know we need to constantly have our belief system reinforced we need to continually come to see the the uh, reliability of the scriptures in fact i think with both these individuals they're downward a uh, journey into error began with them beginning to doubt just certain things that the scriptures taught and once you crack that door open you know that well it's it's not accurate on this then the next thing you know it's not accurate on this and it's not a, and and it goes further and further and further and so they started doubting certain things that the Christian that that scriptures taught. And largely either because in one individual's case it's because he felt that the scriptures didn't align with science. And and so he began to to question the reliability of scriptures on on that basis. Another individual, I think, began to question the Scriptures because certain things that it said did not fit with the way they wanted things to be. And of course, Paul talks about people having itching ears and that false teachers come in and they say what you want to hear. They, you know, present uh, things that uh, uh, are what you, you are, uh, the answers you want rather than what the scriptures actually say. And so Paul, you know, two millennia ago was confronting false teaching very early in the church. The church came under attack. And that attack has continued on generation after generation after generation after generation. And a lot of the attacks are, you know, there's different, uh, I guess, flavors to them. But a lot of the attacks are in a lot of the same kind of areas that they were uh, in Paul's day. You know, in our last time together, we we got into the section of the letter where Paul begins to confront the challenges to Christ's sufficiency. Now, prior, earlier in the letter, he had very clearly presented who Christ is. And a very detailed description of Christ. And then, he went on to speak of his own ministry and how his ministry was 100% about Christ. He preached Christ. It wasn't about anything else. It was totally about Christ. And now he is dealing with those who have begun to bring in error. And many of them weren't trying to deny the existence of Jesus and his ministry. In fact, some of them weren't even uh, seeking to deny his saviorhood. But what they were seeking to deny was his sufficiency. That... You know, there was more necessary for life and godliness than simply Christ. They needed something else. And in our last time together, we saw that uh, he warned them about being taken captive through philosophy and empty deception. And I pointed out that I believe here he was taking on those who were promoting the Greek wisdom or the higher knowledge that some of the earlier forms of Gnosticism were promoting. But he doesn't say that I fear you're going to be taken captive by wisdom and knowledge. True wisdom seeks out and finds Christ. True knowledge is going to take us back to... is going to recognize Christ for who He is. You know, again, this one individual we know who's been led astray, he wants to say, like, that the opening chapters of Genesis just have been totally disproven by science. No, they haven't. In fact, I can... You know, I have a friend in Waukesha who has his PhD in physics who can show you very clearly how everything in Genesis, opening chapters of Genesis, line up very much with science. He spends, that's his ministry in in dealing with that. The Bible doesn't contradict science. If science, if so-called science contradicts the bible there's an error there in in what they what they they're calling science because the word science has to do with knowledge knowledge brings us to a recognition of christ now paul <clears throat> dealt with those uh, in the section we looked at last time but the theological d- danger that the uh, believers in Colossi faced uh, went beyond being taken captive through philosophy and empty deception. It also involved them being brought back under the law. And in, you know, in reality, for many of them, even being drugged back into a lot of the regulations of Judaism. And yet, the law and Judaism also failed to provide anything that went beyond what had been provided for us in Christ. Now, Paul begins this, uh, addressing this issue in verse 11 of chapter 2. And Paul here informs his readers that in Christ they had all become partakers of true circumcision. It says, in him, the him of course being Christ contextually here, in Christ you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh of the circum- by the circumcision of Christ now from the time of abraham forward in the old testament circumcision served as the sign of the covenant relationship between god and israel now, the Abrahamic covenant itself was unconditional in the sense that God was the one who is going to bring the fulfillment of that covenant to pass. It was unconditional. But there was a requirement to be a participant with the covenant people, and that requirement was circumcision. And in the early church, there were those who came into the church, and they proposed that in order to be a a Christian, one had to first be circumcised. And yet, what they failed to, to grasp was that throughout the Old Testament, The the rite of circumcision merely pictured something that would become a, a true reality when the Messiah had come, when the Messiah had carried out his work. And really, we can only come to see the symbolism of circumcision When we get into some of the New Testament writings, particularly the writings of Paul, Paul, again, pulls back the veil on a lot of different things and and, uh, brings us into a deeper understanding of a lot of things which were not absolutely clear in the Old Testament. Paul, a man very well versed in the Old Testament scriptures, who had spent much of his life as a Pharisee, once he became a follower of Christ, Christ opened his eyes to so many of these things that that he had, had known in the scriptures for years, but had never really fully understood the significance of. And in Romans chapter 2, in verses 28 and verse 29, Paul makes this statement. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, neither is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. Paul argues here that the outward sign of circumcision only had any significant because of what it pictured spiritually. The cutting off of the flesh was intended to signify the fact that the covenant relationship did not belong to those who simply shared a physical, a fleshly link to Abraham. But the covenant relationship belonged to those heirs of Abraham who, like him, set aside, reliance on the flesh. So when a child was circumcised, the, the significance of it was meant to say that for this child to truly be part of God's covenant people, they, like Abraham, needed, you know, not to rely on their fleshly tie to Abraham, but to rely on something spiritual. And that's why Paul elsewhere said, not all Israel's is Israel. Now, some will take that and try to twist it around and say, well, now the church is Israel. That's not what Paul's saying. He's saying, look. There are people who are physical descendants of Abraham, but who do not share the spiritual relationship that that Abraham had with God. They may be participants in the outward physical action of circumcision, but they have not... Uh, truly been circumcised in a spiritual sense. Now, Paul further develops this idea in Romans chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. It says, and he, and contextually the he here is Abraham, and he received the sign of circumcision a seal of the righteousness of faith <clears throat> which he had while uncircumcised that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised that righteousness might be reckoned to them and the father of circumcision to those who are not who not only are of the circumcision but also follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham which he had while uncircumcised here Paul, in writing to the church at Rome, states that circumcision was a, an outward declaration of Abraham's faith. It was a sign that Abraham was putting his confidence in God, not in his flesh. And from that day forward, the rite of circumcision was meant to declare that you know, uh, the covenant relationship belonged to those who were not merely the physical heirs of Abraham, but those who shared his faith. And as the centuries went by, what Israel failed to grasp was that circumcision was, a, was merely a sign of the true requirement to be in this covenant relationship with God. If they bore the outward sign but lacked the reality, then the sign was meaningless. Not all Israel is Israel. Many who bore the outward sign did not really share in the faith of Abraham. The sign only had real meaning when it accompanied the reality. Now, throughout the Old Testament, circumcision pictured faith in God rather than reliance on the flesh. But in the Old Testament, there was never any real provision for the O.T. saint to be separated from his fleshly nature. Paul, though, in Colossians 2.11, points out that we as believers do not need to participate in the rite of circumcision because in Christ, true circumcision has taken place. Now, certainly, the Old Testament uh, saints were, were not to rely on the flesh, and neither are we. But we have provision made whereby we can not only cease from relying on the fleshly nature, we can actually be set free from it. In verse 11, Paul speaks of the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Now, this word... Removal, which in some translations is translated putting off, has to do with stripping it off. And in this case, Paul states that the thing that is being stripped off of us is the body of the flesh. Now, the question is, what does Paul mean by this? What is the body? What what does he mean by the body of the flesh? Now, of course, the word body is often in the New Testament used in reference to the physical body. But there are other ways that this term can be used and is used. An example of that is in Romans chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. In that passage, Paul writes, For we know that our old man was crucified with him, so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. In this passage, Paul is arguing that through our death with Christ, and we're going to deal more with this as we move forward through Colossians, but because of our death with Christ... Provision has been made to deal with the full extent of sin. When he talks about the body of sin, he's talking about the totality of sin. Our death with Christ did not just deal with a small aspect of sin. It dealt with sin. The completeness of it. And I believe that in this passage, Paul is using body in a very similar sense. He says, while in the Old Testament, there may have been this break in reliance on the flesh, in Christ provision has been made for the full extent of the flesh to be dealt with. And the circumcision of Christ by which we gain freedom from the flesh is our identification with his death, burial, and resurrection. You know, we... My wife likes visual... Uh, she says she's a visual learner, so she likes... to. De- have some visuals so I'll put some we came to Christ based on our old Adamic nature the old man we'll see the old man later in in uh, Colossians and we now are told in scripture that we are new creations there's a new man Again, we'll look at a lot of this as we move forward in future weeks. But in between what takes us from the old man to the new, and I have to remember not to just point because I'm recording this and it doesn't help people. So if I just start pointing at stuff, remind me, because I'm bad at times of saying what takes us from this to this and the person listening doesn't have a clue what this and this is, but what takes us from this old life to this new is our identification with Christ. Our salvation so completely identifies us with Christ that one, we died with Him. Paul speaks about this On numerous occasions, Uh, uh, we were buried with Him. And we were raised with Him. Death, burial, and resurrection. Uh, Chapter uh, 2, verse 12. Having been buried with Him in baptism... I believe here baptism is spirit baptism. Um, the word "baptize uh, is one of those words that from the earliest days of English translations, nobody's had the courage to translate. Uh, they've always transliterated it. <laughs> comes from the Greek word "baptizo." Uh, the word "baptizo." had started out with the dyeing of a garment where you immersed the garment in the dye and when you pulled it up it had all those qualities of the dye. Now over time the term took on broader meanings and it had to do with becoming immersed or totally identified with something. And so, you know, at the moment of salvation, the Holy Spirit immerses us in Christ. He totally identifies us with Him. And so, that immersion in Christ... identifies us totally with his death, burial, and resurrection. And so Paul says, having been buried with him through immersion in Christ, in, uh, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. So, we, Christ's death is counted as our death. His burial is counted as our burial. His resurrection is counted as our resurrection. Now, the implications of this are numerous. But in this specific passage, Paul tells us that it makes it possible for us to totally put off this old excuse me a Adamic nature that we can be totally set free from that flesh and live on the basis of a whole new life this is real true spiritual circumcision now that break with the flesh is the result of our salvation it is not the cause of it and that becomes clear in verse 13 And when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven uh, all our transgressions. Paul here reminds his audience that God's work began when they were still dead in their transgressions. They were still separated from God. It took place prior to them putting off the fleshly nature. The, The circumcision without hands, which they had in Christ, was the result of their salvation, not the cause of it. It came from their being identified with Christ. Now in verse 14, Paul goes on to point out that God's work, uh, though did more than simply set them free from the requirement of circumcision, it actually dealt with the entire law system. It says, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, In which was hostile towards us, he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Now, you know, for centuries, from the time of Moses onward, the law as a written code had condemned man. You know, many of the Jews... Paul included in his pre-salvation days believed that their righteous standing before God came from their adherence to the law. But that was far from true. In Paul's letter to the churches in Galatia, He tells us that the law was a tutor to bring us to Christ. And the word translated tutor was a servant or a slave that was given the responsibility of taking the, the child of the master to the one who could teach them. It wasn't a tutor like we think of a tutor. The law... You know, it, it, the law was a tutor. It, it, it was, the purpose was to transport us to Christ. To, to show us our need of Christ. The law was never intended to make anyone righteous. It was intended to reveal man's need of a Savior. All the law did was condemn people. Now again, if you go back to the giving of the law, you'll find that the law promised blessings to those who kept it. But it also promised cursings to those who didn't. <coughs> and because no one could keep it, the law became nothing more than a curse. <laughs> You know, to be promised blessings if you can keep something that you can't keep, (laughs) that ain't a blessing. All they could do was, was break the law. And so the law became nothing more than a curse. In reality, it increased man's condemnation. Because it gave man... 613 specific commands and prohibitions that could be transgressed. Transgression is the act of violating a law or a command. It's the act of stepping outside of established boundaries. Now, from the time of Adam and Eve all the way up to the giving of the law, man was sinful. But the majority of man's sin was not transgression. The majority of it was sins against the conscience. You know, Adam and Eve transgressed. Why? Because they were told not to eat of the fruit. And they ate of the fruit. The next main act of transgression that I can think of is at the Tower of Babel. (laughs) When man was commanded to disperse throughout the world, and man said, no, we don't want to disperse. We're going to build a city and a tower here to keep us together. That was a transgression. But apart from those, you don't really have much evidence of transgression. Simply sins of the conscience, like with... with. Uh, uh, Cain and Abel. Cain didn't have a command from God, thou shalt not murder, but he knew he shouldn't murder. <laughs> and he uh he did it anyhow. But with the giving of the law now, there were numerous rules that could be transgressed. And for this reason. It's interesting that Paul presents the law not as a friend, but as a foe. And it's interesting for Paul to present the, the law in this light. Because, you know, as a Pharisee, Paul had loved the law. Oh man, he hugged that law. Man, it was his ticket to righteousness. He loved it. But now, in the years that have transpired since Christ met him on the road to Damascus, he's come to see the law in an entirely different light. He's seen it as something that is an enemy to mankind. Now, that doesn't mean that he came to see the law as something evil. He didn't. In fact, he makes that very clear in his letter to the Romans, in Romans chapter 7, verse 7. He says, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? And he responds to his own question when he says, may it never be. On the contrary... I would not have come to know sin except through the law for I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said you shall not covet he saw the law as good he saw the law as serving a very good purpose but he also saw the law as serving its good purpose, not by being a friend, but by being an enemy. In Galatians three ten, he describes life under the law as being a curse. <clears throat> for as many are as uh, are uh, for as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. As I said earlier, while the law promised blessings to those who kept them, it promised cursings to those who didn't. And because no one, no one with this Adamic nature had the capacity, to keep the law it became nothing more than a curse and that's why in Colossians 2.14 Paul speaks of it being hostile towards us and Paul goes on to say that the way that God dealt with this foe was by taking it out of the way, nailing it to the cross take this down for a minute if you're going to carry a cross around make sure you make it out of styrofoam it's a lot easier (laughs) Paul says look the way that God dealt with the law was by taking it out of the way, nailing its requirements there on the, to the cross. Now we're going to see a bit of the cross as we move forward. We're going to see ultimately that the cross is what deals with the old Adamic nature that the old man is seen as crucified. And we don't have a, a lot of time to get into it right now. But I do think it's important to understand how important the cross is in salvation. You know, why did God choose the cross? Certainly, the death of Christ is important. But there's a lot of ways Christ could have died. In fact, at Nazareth, they wanted to throw him over a cliff. God didn't let that happen. There were times they wanted to stone him. God didn't let that happen. It was the cross that God used. And certainly, it was the place that Christ died, and as we see, we'll see as we go on. It's the place we died with Him. But it's—I think I've seen come to see this more and more over the years that there is a significance to the cross itself. Some years ago, it. I really, I, I just, the Lord kind of, I think, pressed on my heart to look through the New Testament and note the places where it talked about things being crucified and where it speaks of something being dead or having died. And all too often Christians make those terms synonymous and they aren't. They are not synonymous terms. You know, we at this church believe in the verbal plenary inspiration of the Bible, which means that every part of the Bible, every word of the Bible in its original autographs, was inspired by God. It was the precise word He wanted. Now, you and I don't have those original autographs, nobody does. We do, uh, you know, the the church does have in its possession very accurate uh, copies of those uh, original documents that have been shown to be accurate by textual criticism. And you and I have translations of it. But nevertheless, the words God chose are important. And when the Holy Spirit Said died, he meant died. When he said crucified, he meant crucified. He didn't say, say "Well, mm-mm, they're the same." I'll just stick crucified in here. I'll put died in here. Now, you know, uh, they're all the same thing. I don't think so. Crucifixion was a form of judgment. That resulted in death, but it was a long, drawn-out process. And if you go to, if you go back and read the the crucifixion account, you'll find Christ was crucified and, and two other criminals were crucified with him. And as you read on in the crucifixion account, they've been crucified, but they're still talking. One of the the criminals actually becomes a believer after he's been crucified. Crucifixion is a place of judgment that leads to death. And there are certain things that... Scripture says, have been crucified. They aren't dead. They aren't gone. They've been put in a place of judgment. Examples. The old man has been crucified. Now a lot of people, those who hold to what's known as one naturism, they say, well the old man's been crucified, he's dead and gone. No he's not. He's hanging on the cross. He's in a place of judgment. Judgment. But like that thief that hurled insults at Christ. That old man can still influence us if we'll let him. But he's in a place of judgment. Again, Galatians 2.20 talks about us being crucified with Christ. And I think there it's talking about the old man. I personally prefer the King James translation of uh, Galatians 2.20 over the m- modern one. The so, uh, King James said, I've been crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. I think it gives us a more accurate rendering. I, the old man, have been crucified with Christ. And it still lives, but... The life that I now live, I live on the basis of my new life in Christ. This isn't gone. If you think it's gone, ask your spouse. They will point out to you, it's, the old man is still there. You know, the flesh is said to be crucified. Galatians 5.24 The world is said to be crucified. Galatians 6.14 The world ain't dead and gone. It's been put in a place of judgment by, the cross, by, by Christ's work there on the cross. But on the other hand, we are seen as having died to sin. We as an entity now have a new nature. We don't have to serve the old. I guess, you know, I tried to illustrate this to a student one time. I said, it's kind of like being a computer that enters, you know, things with a faulty operating system. We entered this world with a faulty operating system. That sinful nature of Adam. At salvation, we are given a new operating system. One that's in union with Christ. And in a sense, we have two operating systems. We are called to, by faith, count ourselves dead to this. What does it mean to count ourselves dead? Well, in Middle Eastern culture, and you see this in Judaism today, you see it, I think, in Islam. When someone becomes a Christian, their family counts them dead to them. It's our relationship is broken. We are to consider ourselves dead to what we once were in Adam, and we are to consider ourselves alive. Why? Because the cross identified us with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ which brings us into this new realm. We're also told in Romans 7, verses 4 and 6 and in Galatians 2.19 that we died to the law. The law's not dead, but we died to it. Colossians 2.20 We died to the basic principles of this world our relationship to all those has has been severed we no longer have to be part of them and we're to see that is true and hopefully i mean i don't have time, enough time to discuss this now we will discuss it more as we move forward through our study but just as we finish up this morning again paul says that the requirements of the law were nailed there on the cross And again, if you go back to crucifixion, you know, when Christ was crucified, they nailed a plaque above him. With crucifixion, they would put a plaque there saying what crimes they were guilty of. And Pilate couldn't find any crime, so he just put Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. But Paul tells us that The way that God dealt with the law was He nailed the requirements of the law on the cross. Those things which were the crimes held against us were nailed to the cross so that the cross is seen as the the satisfaction of God's demands for the law. And by it, God takes the law out of the way. The condemnation it had on us is gone. It was nailed, it was dealt with by the cross. And so, the necessity of the law is gone. It can add nothing to the work of Christ. Now, we're out of time. In fact, we're past being out of time. I'll stop there. And, (coughs) excuse me, we'll pick up there. Next week, because it's going to be interesting to see that when Paul talks about taking the law out of the way, he also talks about that in doing so, God, uh, God disarmed our enemy. He took away a weapon that our enemy has used very effectively against us. And will continue to use against us if, if we don't really uh, recognize how the cross dealt with the laws uh, hold on us so let's close in prayer father we thank you now for this time we thank you for these truths lord i know some of them are difficult to take on board right away but lord as we move forward through this letter and through future studies i pray that more and more we would come to see ourselves in christ and experience the freedom that it brings from the world from the flesh from Satan and from the law. Lord, may we learn to live as the new creations we are in Christ. In whose precious name we pray. Amen. Do you have a song with you? Huh? Do you have your phone with you? Yeah. Could you take a picture?